Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, an unusual ventures podcast where we learn from the successful startup leaders of today how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya, and in every episode, I'll dive into a different aspect of early stage company building with our guests. Let's go. Our guest today is the CEO and co-founder of Jasper AI, Dave Rogan Moser. Jasper AI is an AI native content marketing platform used by over 80,000 marketers already. The mission is to help anybody with a great idea share it with a few clicks. And they're also one of the first few companies that has built an incredibly compelling product in the hot new space of generative AI raising a $125 million round early in 2022. Congrats, and thank you so much for joining us, Dave. Appreciate it. I'm ready to roll. Great. So let's go back all the way to 2014. I love that you are an eight-year-old overnight success. <laughs> that's, the, the, that's a really good one. And so you, your co-founders, JP and Chris, you just said you just decided you wanted to build a company together. So that was the year that you all made the leap, so to speak. And so would love to understand that, you know, between then and 2020, when you actually first started what has now become Jasper AI, what was it like? What were some of the big milestones and turning points in that six-year wilderness? Yeah, great question. We started in 2014. We just wanted to build a business together. Didn't really have almost any skills. Didn't really know anything. We're just like, we don't want to go get a job, so let's go figure it out. And we tried to start this little software company that ended up failing. It was a bad idea. We didn't know anything. And it was just too, it was too capital intensive, too labor intensive, too long of a path to cash. And they had wives and kids, and like we needed to get to some cash really quickly. And so we quickly dumped that, started a marketing agency where we got clients, and we would help them do Facebook ads or SEO or build landing pages. They're usually local small businesses, kind of brick-and-mortar businesses. And at the time, we didn't even know how to do the services that we were offering. And so what I would do is I would find people that could do the services. I would contract out to them. I was basically the salesperson and the project manager, and I would sell the deal for $1,500 a month to run your Facebook ads. I would pay the contractor 50% of that, so he's going to make $750 a month, and then everybody's happy. And that was really our first semi-successful business, and that was really hard. I mean, again, we didn't know the skills. We didn't know the customer. I didn't know the terminology. A lot of it was fake it till you make it and saying yes to a lot of things and knowing that I'm going to figure it out as soon as I hang up that call. And just that was like a really intense like learning time, but I really got to know marketing. You know, that was kind of my crash course of, you know, jump out of the airplane and build the uh, parachute on the way down. And I just learned so much about marketing because I had to, and I was doing it for all these different industries. One day I'm building a marketing campaign for like an air conditioning installation company. And then that afternoon I build it to help sell airplanes for this like local flight school. And then I go and I sell yerba mate cans, you know, through this e-commerce funnel that we were building. And so I just learned a ton. That's also a bad way to build an agency. And we ended up getting stretched <laughs> way too thin because we just had all these different clients that were all angry at us all the time. But it was such a great way to learn broadly about a bunch of different 
services, a bunch of different industries and all that. So we ended up deciding to shut that down after probably a year or I'm so. I'm curious, curious though, what would you say were your top digital marketing lessons having kind of learned how to fly that plane while building it, so to speak. What were some of the lessons that, you know, you wish all marketers really had imbibed? One, I was very dogmatic when I started. And I thought, you know, I would speak so confidently to clients and I would just say, well, you're going to need this three-page funnel and you're going to want to put the button here and you're going to want to have this. And then I've realized that, you know, it's really different for every industry and that the tactics don't just translate. But what I really grew to realize was that a deep understanding of the customer was key. And this is what was so hard about it because I was in so many industries where I just really had no idea what the customer was thinking. What's their motivation? What are their pain points? What are their alternatives? What are they thinking about that causes them to call you? Why do they cancel? What are they really trying to get at here? And like, at a deep level. So somebody that's looking for airplane flying lessons, like what's really the motivation? Are they rich people that just want to like take the plane out, you know, for a bit? Are they trying to start a new career as an airline pilot? Are they kids? You know, it's like, there's all sorts of different angles here. And that really impacts the ad angles. It impacts the messaging, it impacts all of that. And it was just too hard to come into all these different things and learn that. And so you're left with having to rely on some of the tactics and not able to go deep. And so I really grew an appreciation and the love that I think has carried us through and is a big part of what we do today of just like going so deep with the customer that like you know them or can articulate things about them better than maybe they even could themselves. And I found like when you can get to that level and you can tell somebody something that they believe deeply, like it, it builds an amazing level of trust with your customers, your prospects, and it allows you to just build really great marketing, but I'd say really great product, really great service, really great business. Like that is an art form that I think too many people skip over. You focus more on like the best practices and the latest tactics rather than just, you know, you need to know what toothpaste your customer uses to brush their teeth in the morning, right? I think I think that makes a lot of sense. It's also the easier thing to default to, to feel like, yes, I have a strategy, like you default to the science rather than the art that definitely tracks. All right. So, so you spent a year, you said, on the marketing agency. Yeah, we spent a year. I think we built it to about $25,000 a month and we were just miserable and we just said, we can't scale this any further. You know, it's just too much. Like, we're kind of at this dead end. And so we decided to pivot hard. So one day we just said, hey, we don't want to do this anymore. We were actually at this conference. We got invited to speak at this physical therapy conference the day before. We were sitting in the hot tub at this Airbnb. And we were just like, you know, guys, do you even want to do this anymore? And it was just like a resounding no. And we're like, all right, that's it. We're done with this. We're going to go to the conference. We're going to speak. But we're going to tell them we're not taking any clients on anymore. And we're going to start a course, launch a course on how to build a marketing agency up to $25,000 a month. And so we launched this course called 6K Success. We basically productized everything that we had done successfully. And again, we've done a lot of stuff, I'd say unsuccessfully. But a big th one thing we were really great at was like landing new clients and like getting new campaigns out the door. And so we built this course called 6K Success that was teaching all of that. 
And, and then we were finally doing the marketing for ourselves. We were building these really great marketing funnels, and we were running our own ads at much bigger scale than we were before. And you know, that was a, an even deeper crash course. I'm like, okay, here's like what really good marketing takes. And then here's what good community takes, you know. So that was the first time we kind of ran our own online community. We had all these people buying our course and teaching them how to do this stuff. And those were skills that, again, we now had in the tool belt to carry on to, you know, a lot of what makes Jasper successful here. But it was just, it was us, I think, being willing to pivot, but also keeping like a thread of consistency there. You know, it wasn't us saying, all right, we don't want to run a marketing agency, so let's go start a medical health company. It was like, all right, let's like, what's a better version of kind of what we're doing here right now? And like, how do we like level up, like take the next step up the ladder, if you will, where uh, we can still take a lot of skills into this next business, but not keep doing the same thing and banging our heads against the wall. So we did that for a couple of years. That was really great. Learned so much about community, learned so much about branding, learned so much about great marketing. And, you know, it's really hard to sell courses profitably. You've got to be perfect and and your funnels and your follow-up emails and your positioning and your ads like it's got to be so good to eke out a profit that by the time we kind of got to the end of that we were just thinking you know this is a lot of work we keep getting copied instantly there's no kind of differentiation our customers you know our customers just steal our course and sell it for themselves so when something that's like harder to do and JP one of my co-founders is a developer we didn't really know how good of a developer he was, but turns out he's a really great developer. We had this idea to go build what turned out to be Proof, which was this little pop-up that would pop up on your site, show who bought the product, and you know, and when they bought it. You know, so Dave just bought this product, you know, eight minutes ago, and we built this little MVP for it, put it on our funnels for our own course, and we saw conversion rate go up. I think the first test it went up like forty-eight percent, and we were like, "Holy cow, this is great! We can actually sell way more of our courses." But we also thought, well, maybe this is our, maybe this is a product that we could kind of take into a real product and go build a company around this and kind of get into software. And so we had a few friends in marketing that were also running funnels. And so I, I gave it to them. We installed it for them just manually. Soup, you know, there was no app. It was just all like some raw code and just said, hey, let us know if this works or not. If you increase conversion rate, let us know. If it doesn't work, totally fine. And I think we gave it to four or five people. They came back and said, this worked great. You know, can I get this on the rest of my funnels and stuff that I'm running? And that was awesome. That was kind of the day we decided like, all right, everyone's saying it works great. We think there's a good business here. Like, let's go pivot. And so we basically shut down the other business again and pivoted into this new version where, again, it was the next level up. It wasn't a total pivot into a new industry and into all new things. There was some stuff we were learning that were brand new. There were some things that we, you know, we were kind of keeping consistent there. And I think that allowed us to move really quickly. But we ran this webinar before we had built the product at all. So again, it was still this raw code. There's no app. There's no way to log in. I hosted this webinar, had, I don't know, a couple hundred people show up to it. I'm pitching the whole thing. You know, here's what it's going to do. And here's, you know, all the magic. It was a really great pitch. And we had, and then I said, hey, but it's not ready yet. But if you pay annually right now, if you pay a thousand bucks for the year, we'll get you first access whenever we do release it. And everyone was like pretty like mad in the chat. And they were like, you know, I thought this was ready now. We want it. But like then we had 80 people pay a thousand bucks on that webinar. And that was like the most money we'd ever made ever. And it was like really validating that now we had people that said, hey, not only am I telling you I want this, like here's a thousand of my dollars right, to hold right. on to. You got $80,000 in one day. 
$80,000. I still, we've got a video of me like scrolling through like the Stripe notifications on my phone, <laughs> just like freaking out. I'm like, this is $1,000, $1,000, $1,000. And so it was really validating before we had to go build all this thing that like, people really wanted it. And so we ended up building that, you know, over the next month and getting that out to people's hands. And, you know, the market was really, really excited about it. This is a brand new thing. It really worked. We were the right people to take this thing to market. And that was when, you know, we said, hey, like this is growing fast. We don't know how to grow a software company. How do we, we need to go figure out how to do that from the best in the world. And for us, I looked around and that was Y Combinator. And I never kind of dreamed that I'd be able to get into something like Y Combinator. You know, I didn't have any cool pedigree or cool companies I worked for or cool university or anything like that. It's like, we just knew how to grow software fast, at least fast out of the gate. And so that was when we got into Y Combinator and kind of started, you know, I guess the next level of like thinking about how to like scale big software companies. So I have two follow-up questions. One, as co-founders, you have been on this journey already, trying three different businesses together. What was, what, how were you thinking about kind of, okay, what are the complementary skill sets? Who focuses on what by the time, you know, you're scaling proof? And second, like, when did you start getting the first inklings of like headwinds in the proof business? Like, well, what was the kind of first sign of, okay, not everything is going according to plan. Yeah, so it, we didn't really know everyone's skill set when we started. So it wasn't like the three of us just worked on paper and it made total sense. Mostly we were just friends and we all liked entrepreneurship and we wanted to do something together. It turned out to be perfect and it really fell into the slot where it made sense for me to lead the company, made sense for Chris to really be more of the kind of once- we signed customers up. He was really great at the support. He was really great at building these like customer experiences that like made everybody so excited to have bought. And then JP was more of the product person that would help with all the more technical stuff. But then eventually he's the CTO of Proof and Jasper. So the complementary skill sets like definitely fell into place fairly naturally, but there was still a lot of conversation early days around, you know, we're stepping on each other's toes and we're saying, hey, like, do you like doing that or do you not like doing that? And there was definitely some of that. And I think with Proof, you know, we came out of the gate really strong. We got to like $75,000 of MRR like really quickly. And again, I would say it was instant validation from day one, you know, that this is really good. So there was not this long delay. And I think people get, I think founders get stuck and they, they wait too long before they've seen any validation and they just think it's coming around the corner. And like my experience has been, it's usually very quick. And it may not be the fullness of it, and it may not be all that you want, but usually there's like signs of life, like like real life, like very, very quickly. And for Proof, it was certainly that. Proof ended up being a feature and not a real platform. And we could never figure out how to take it beyond that. It was high churn. It was kind of easy to install, but man, it was easy to remove. A flood of competitors come in and clone it, giving you kind of pricing pressure. And so we started to build this website personalization tool. That was what we pitched YC, and we thought that was the future. The future of the internet is you go to a website, and the headline's personalized, and the images are personalized. It's all very personalized for you. And so as soon as we got out of YC, we shifted most of our focus away from Proof the pop-up to Proof Experiences was the second product. And this is a real case study, and I think doing it wrong. And you know we had this VC funding, and so we felt like, oh, well, it's okay if we don't get any feedback for a year. It's okay if this doesn't work right out of the gate. You know, whatever. Like, we've got plenty of time here. Like, before it was like, if this doesn't work in 30 days, 
we're out because we don't have the ability to do that. So we got like a little sloppy. We got a little fat. We just got, you know, we, the urgency was gone. So we started building this tool and people liked it, but no customer ever loved it. And nobody in the demos loved it. Nobody, you know, it was just kind of like a, this is pretty cool, but we never had that pull, you know, from the market that I think we had from Proof, that we had from some of our past businesses that we certainly had with Jasper. And after like 18 months of working on it, everyone just got kind of tired of it. You know, it was growing slowly, but not real fast. We were burning money. We were just fixing a bunch of edge case bugs all the time. And we started having, you know, developers leave and they were happy, but they were just like, hey guys, like, I can't keep fixing bugs the rest of my life. Like, this isn't going anywhere. And so we were just like, you know, I think, I think the end might be, might be near here because even the founders didn't want to work on it much anymore. Uh, and so we ended up letting, you know, about half the team go. I think we were about 15 people at the time. Ended up letting about half the team go. And yeah. this was early 2020? This was late 2020. This was like, you know, kind of made it through COVID, you know, initially in COVID, made a big push, you know, started growing again. And, you know, that was like really, but they just like didn't sustain. And so it was like October of 2020. We let the team, you know, half the team go. We pulled back. And, and I think this is a mistake founders make is when it's not working, they iterate too incrementally. And they think, oh, I just, you know, maybe it's a little feature here. Maybe we just need to position it better here. And I just don't think that there was a lot that would have, like, there weren't small changes. There was, like, bigger fundamental things that we needed to, like, pull out of the forest, like, above the forest, like, look around and be like, all right, if we could do anything, what would we do? And in that month, we started digging more into AI and started looking more at GPT-3 and just realized, oh, these models are really good. At the time, we had been training. I ran a little, I spun up a little coaching business again, teaching B2B SaaS companies how to run Facebook ads. And I was teaching this course. Uh, there was a lesson on how to like write great Facebook ad copy. And I was like, oh, I could just use AI to do that for them. Let's build a little app that does that. And look, we'll give it to these 10 people I was, you know, coaching and consulting with and see if they like it. And we had been so wounded by the 18 months of, delay with Jasper or with proof experiences that we were like, you know, if this doesn't work in 30 days, we are shutting it down. Like <laughs> if we it. don't, if we don't really know this is working in 30 days, we're shutting it down and we're moving on to something else. And, and was the was I'm curious, the proof experiences kind of 18 month stretch, like is it clear in hindsight or was it clear to you even then that the you're just not feeling the love? Like, was every meeting clear to you that you haven't found the aha yet? It was one of those things where I would read about product market fit. And, you know, you hear it. You hear people say, you'll know it when you have it. And that was so frustrating to me because I was like, that's not helpful. Like, I don't know. I don't know if we have it or not. And it's like, I'm missing the obvious here. Like if you're frustrated by that and if you don't know if you have it and you want, you want the metrics, you want the answer, you probably just don't have it. Because a month into Jasper, I was like, oh, that's what that meant. This is absolutely what it feels like to be just pulled by the market so much faster. And with proof, we had this joke, you know, anytime we'd run a marketing campaign or launch a new product, you know, we'd kind of think, okay, we want this marketing campaign to bring in $500,000, or we want this new product to decrease churn by this amount. 
and nothing ever worked as well as we thought it would. And that was always the joke is nothing ever works, but if you keep doing enough stuff, you know, eventually it kind of compounds and it, it works some. And then with Jasper, every, everything worked with Jasper. And we'd do a webinar, we'd make, we'd have 10 times the attendees that we expected. We would, you know, to launch something, we'd make five times more revenue than we thought. And it was just like, oh, for the first time, it feels like we're getting the benefit of like something bigger than ourselves. And we're not just like grinding for every little dollar, every little thing that we did there. So that was pretty exciting. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the best description of what a tailwind feels like <laughs> from a founder, right? That you, whenever you set a goal, the market just helps you exceed it. And you, you just feel the love as opposed to having to like grind for it every time. Oh, that's, yeah. That's wonderful. yeah. It, it, it felt like we were executing perfectly with proof. Again, we weren't really, but it felt like, man, we're doing really good work and our team is so talented and like nothing we're doing is really moving the needle, even when we like work really hard and like objectively, you know, this is like a really good product we'd build or marketing campaign we just build. Like it just wouldn't do anything. And so I'm just like, man, this, I finally got to a point where I realized like this is not working. It hasn't been working if I'm honest with myself for a long time. And therefore it's, it's very unlikely that it starts working anytime soon. And so we need to make a big shift. Right. And so how far did you get on revenue with Proof when you decided to pivot in October 2020? We got it to about $250,000 a month of recurring revenue. We were growing about 3% a month. But like the new, the Proof Experiences, the personalization product was a very, very small percentage of that. A lot of that was the pop-up business. And yeah, we just, we actually looked at selling the company and we were talking to a broker and we we're just like, you know, what is this thing worth? And he's like, well, it's kind of a weird company because it's growing, but it's growing slowly, but it's also burning money. And so you either need to grow way faster and you know, people buy fast growing companies that burn money or you got to get really profitable. We didn't know how to grow faster. And so we just thought, well, we need to like strip down the team and we need to get rid of a bunch of bloated software and like, we'll just get this profitable and, and let that ride it out. All right. I think we are ready for fall 2020, Dave. Yeah, one thing I'll just add too is looking back, we spent too long on on proof. And and obviously that's clear in hindsight. I don't think, you know, we should have just not done it. But I think probably six months in, we should have, we could have been, we could have called it and we could have said, you know, this is not working. We also should have been way more ruthless with a real MVP and thought, we need to get this into the market with customer excitement inside of a month and outside of that. So again, I'm not the one to say, you know, oh, you know, we just shouldn't have done it and we should have known right out of the gate. But like, you don't need to spend 18 months on something that's not working. If you're past that, I just think the odds of it really working are, are pretty small in most cases. And at least with, at least with MarTech, you know, there's probably some like, you know, hard tech that's, you know, just takes a long time. But at least with, if you're building like apps and, you know, tools for, for companies, like you could probably pivot way sooner than that. But, but yeah, so fall 2020, again, we had been in this space for a long time. This is like six years of working with marketing teams, helping marketers grow their business in a variety of different ways, helping people write content better, helping people write, do copywriting better. And so I, I knew the customer deeply. I'm a marketer by trade. We had an email list you know, of past customers built up and people that were following us. And so 
building a tool around AI was pretty straightforward for us. So I think like we really had like founder market fit when we went into this, is that it was like, oh, like we're the perfect people to bring this really cool thing to market. And so, yeah, we built, you know, and again, same thing. We said, all right, we're going to build this little tool that writes Facebook ads well and writes Google ads well and writes landing page copy well. And we're going to launch it within 30 days of starting on it. And we built it and got it into people's hands. I was doing demos. Like, you know, I started off by just doing like one-on-one demos over Zoom. And I still got recordings of all of these. And people, I would show it to them and they would just start cussing. And they would just say, you know, holy bleep. And this is the best thing I've ever seen. They started saying things like, this is the best thing I've ever seen since. And they would say, the N64, you know, when I was a kid. Or the first time my house got dial-up internet. Or all these like big things. I was like, holy cow, like these are significant technologies you're comparing us to. And then they would just say, when can I get it? I'm ready to pay. Let me do it. And it was just like instant validation again, like not just with their words, but with money. They were ready to put their credit card down and there was real enthusiasm around it. And so we... Who was the persona you were focused on? Was it kind of the same small business owner, marketer? Like who are the folks that you were focused on? Was it them saying, oh my God, this will make my business more productive. I can work with more clients. Like who are those kind of first adopters? Yeah, most of them were serious marketers, either marketing for their own online business, you know, probably some courses and coaching and people like that, where again, that's an industry where marketing really matters because the product is not differentiated. And so just everyone becomes a really great marketer. And to do this was them, or it was like agency owners that had a bunch of clients that they needed help with. And again, like the pain point that I felt viscerally when I ran an agency is you've got all these new clients, but you know, it's really hard to like get the copy spun up for each one of them. You know, all of a sudden Jasper can just like bring you up to speed with a new client, you know, day one. So it was, it was serious marketers that I knew lived and died on how good their marketing was. Makes sense. So they were all, they have already tried a lot of new tools, like they're looking for solutions as opposed to, oh, I don't know, I would rather play it safe. Yeah. And, you know, they knew me, they trusted me, they followed me for years. There was definitely like trust there where it's like, hey, if Dave has something that he thinks is really good, you know, it's at least worth looking at. But they'd never seen anything like AI based. I mean, that was all just brand new. And so this was mind blowing to people, you know, out of the gate. How did you think about the user experience, the workflow, given that it's so new? Of course, you're, you know, sounds like your early adopters were bleeding edge, will try it the way it is right now, you know, perfect, perfect early evangelists. But you must have thought about like, how do we reimagine user experience for this extremely new, you know, what feels like magic to the customer? How do you think about UX? I'm curious, like, uh, you know, what were the next few months like and how did you go from MVP to, you no, know, this is kind of the broader platform that can cross the chasm? Yeah, so we just guessed first, you know, we just said, hey, we're just, we don't have time to do a ton of user interviews. Like, we just want to get this into the hands of the market ASAP and then let them pull that out of us. And so we just took a guess and you know, there's a lot of things that were right, a lot of things that were wrong about that. Our MVP didn't have 
almost any features or functionality. Like, I don't even think you could sign up on your own. I think we had to like mail you, email you your like login and password for you to like go log in. There's no cancellation button. There's no way to do anything. There's no user settings. Like it just is the core of the app and we're like, get it in people's hands right now. And, and then, yeah, you know, then you just, we engaged, we had a community, we had our, our Facebook group early on and I was just hanging out in there like all day, every day, talking to people, how are you using it? What do you guys need? What's, what, what's bad about it? Where is it annoying? And then we would just try to ship something new every single day in a very lightweight way. Like it was just speed was all we were trying to do. And just knowing that if we can just listen to them, build something that they say like that day, like this is going to like work. And that iteration cadence was so, so powerful. And it also builds a lot of trust with your customers because they just think, okay, they're listening. And even if it's not what I want it to be right now, I've got confidence that it's going to get there. One thing that we saw early on is we thought this was a conversion optimization tool. And it was actually called conversion.ai was our very first name. And I, I thought in terms of it's going to help you convert more you know, ad buyers, you help you convert more landing page and like a very direct response marketing kind of language. And then we started asking, you know, what do you want? And they all said, well, we want to write longer stuff. We want to write long emails. We want to write blog posts. We want to write long social media posts. And they started talking about content more than they talked about conversions. And we realized, okay, like conversion and like, like that's performance marketing is definitely one component of this, but it felt like Jasper actually was being used and wanted to be used, you know, to write more long form content. And so I think one of the first big shifts in my mind was, oh, this is not a performance marketing tool. It's a tent marketing tool. And, and that means we've got to shift the product to like handle longer stuff there. And I, I really, and even right out of the gate, we launched the product and the first week and somebody wrote a book with it. And again, they were using this little tool, it was called the Sentence Expander, that took like a small sentence and turned it into like a longer sentence. And they like wrote this whole book with this miserable tool that's not built for that at all. Right. And I was like, it hadn't even occurred to me that somebody might want to write something longer than a few sentences. It's obvious in hindsight, but like that really got pulled out of us by the market. And I really did not even see that going into it at all. Right. And how big was the Facebook community when you first started and you first launched your product like early days, maybe early 2021? How big was the community? I assume you got a lot of word of mouth, you know, folks joining. But what were kind of the early marketing tactics you used before you went out, raised money, etc.? Yeah, I mean, it was small. I mean, the very first was probably, you know, me and 20 people. So it was small out of the gate. And then, you know, it kind of grew as fast as our customer base did. But yeah, it started off like really small and really intimate. And like I knew every single person by name. I would interact with every single person. Like it was this intimate little thing where like it was just like a bunch of friends like hanging out. And that was really great. Again, I didn't think of that so much as a marketing thing as I thought of it as like a product development need. And that I just needed, I needed to be close to them so I, I would know what to build. Turns out it's a pretty good way to activate people and communities have so many benefits to it. But so we, we invested a lot there, but it, was, it felt like very organic and natural. I was just having fun. We also, you know, did a lot of Facebook ads early on. I mean, we were good at that. It was a core competency we had. You know, I knew that the best companies grow through word of mouth, but you've got to jumpstart 
the flywheel somehow. Otherwise, you know, if I've got 20 customers and, you know, my viral coefficient is 1.1 or something, you know, it just takes a long time. It's like, well, great. Well, let's go like buy our way to, you know, having a bigger customer base. So we did that, you know, and that worked effectively. We had an email list from kind of past companies that we'd market to, but it really was strong word of mouth from early days. You know, people would just rave about it and tell all their friends. And so we, we were definitely like, propelling the market forward some, but we were also just carried by the market and, and word of mouth was great. Makes sense. Maybe pivoting a little bit to the tech side, how do you think about the trade-offs of working with foundation model companies like OpenAI, a lot of others as well, um, versus building your own, you know, having your own infrastructure? You know, could you walk founders who are thinking about building AI native software companies, could you walk them through kind of what are the trade-offs like in terms of gross margin, in terms of control, in terms of, you know, what are even the vectors to really care about here? Early on, we didn't know how to do anything with AI. And so it wasn't even an option really you know, we'd have to go hire all that out and like really get up to speed there. So, I mean, our team was really great at community, really great at growth, really great at marketing, you know, really great at customer, you know, go, again, like I said, customer depth. Like, I think we just knew the customer so deeply and so much more deeply than our competitors because we'd been working with them for years. That like, we knew like those were our strengths and like speed to market was going to be key here. And like, we were like thinking this is going to be a huge market. Nobody really knows it yet, but we've got to get to number one really fast. And so we were just like, you know, we're just going to ride off of OpenAI's GPT-3 API. And we we did train it, you know, and so even early days, I would say it was better than most of the competition and that, you know, customers would tell us that like what's why is it so much better? You're all using the same thing. And so there was things that we did there, but the core of it was, you know, another company's product that we used and I remember having a conversation with a founder that had a kind of an adjacent product, not competitive, but somewhat, or at least would be competitive in the future. And and they were telling me how dumb I was for using another person's API. And they were building it all in-house. And they were saying, you know, this is not going to work. You know, you don't want to be reliant on these other companies. You know, you're not a real company, you know, all of that. And I was like, well, like, let's just see how this goes. Like, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm right. You know, let's see how this goes. And it's like, it's obviously gone tremendously for us because that's a whole part of the company that now we don't have to focus on early days when resources are so limited. It means we can move really fast. It means that we get all the updates that they have without us having to even work on them at all. And again, there's some risk that, you know, OpenAI goes into business in that first year, you know, something like that. But like, you know, we waited and we're like, you know, that, that seems like a pretty small risk here that we're willing to accept. And so I think since then, we still work with OpenAI a ton today, love working with them. They're terrific partners. We don't want to be reliant on one company. And so we've got our own AI team now. And you know, some of what they do is they're fine-tuning and working deeply with OpenAI. Some of what they're doing is expanding and, and looking out in the market at what are other things out there that we can do to solve our customers' needs. But that has come so much later in the journey and I think if we would have spent a bunch of time on that early days, that would have been a huge time sink and, and would have really slowed us down. And so unless somebody has deep expertise in AI and really perhaps has an angle there that they think they can exploit, I think most people 
should probably just start with some out of the box solutions. Whether it's OpenAI or it could be other models, but like should start like start there, build some use cases around that, you know, and then start to think about how do you uh, you know differentiate or, or diversify as you grow. And now that you're building your own, what are the advantages you are hoping to build? I'm sure it's kind of always work in progress, but what does you know the ideal look like there? I mean, for us, it's always customer-led. And so I think a lot of folks, especially in, in tech or maybe even AI, you know, they're almost white paper driven. And it's, you know, oh, this new breakthrough happened. How do I force that into the market? Or how do I just, they start with, I want to use this new technology. What should I do with it? And I think we really try to say, what are our customers asking for that we can't currently do and in some cases with, let's say, OpenAI, again, there's some things that we can't do. You know, we don't, we don't have access to the underlying models and we can't do a lot there. And so sometimes it means looking at other models to like, you know, explore other things that our customers want. So there's just more control. Obviously, that comes with complexity, but there's more control. There is cost savings. I don't particularly care too much about that right now. You know, our gross margins are fine even working with open AI. But you know, there's some cost savings that will be material later on that you know we might say, hey, we need to go get more profitable. And so we're going to run our own models there. There's things like speed. You know, we could have our own models that run faster and are faster for the user there, but that's not like a big a big thing. You know, I think for us it's really just control. Like are there there's use cases that we want to go explore that you can't do out of the box with open AI that we feel like it's our duty to go solve those needs for our customers. And sometimes we need to look at other things for that. And maybe wrapping this up, um, what would be your advice for founders getting started in 2023? If you were doing a fresh start, what would you want to tell your uh, future self? Well, I think ride a big wave, which right now is generative AI. So, I would be starting with generative AI. That doesn't mean necessarily text. It could mean image generation. I see cool stuff with audio generation coming out. There's cool stuff with video generation coming out. So the industry right now is so early that I think a lot of people default to thinking about marketing copy or things like that. And like that's just that's like one tiny little thing that happens to have worked early on. I think I would take, I would understand that tech. But then I would go to a customer segment or an industry that is not fully up to speed on all of this. And I would start just talking to them. And I would start asking a lot of questions about where is their work inefficient? Tell me about this process that you do. What do you do here? Where's the biggest time wasters in your day? You know, what's the biggest pain point in your business. And I'll start to ask all these questions. So like, let's say, for example, you went to like a law firm or you said, hey, like, I'm going to figure out how to do this for like, you know, legal teams. I was telling somebody that the other day and they were like, they said, oh, and like do marketing copy for legal teams. <laughs> and, and, and like, no, not at all. Like, and they were like, well, what would you do? It's like, well, I, I don't know. And I wouldn't go into it with a bunch of preconceived notions about what to do. I would come into it with a totally blank slate. Like, I'm just interviewing you. Maybe there's something here, maybe there's not. But I, I'm guessing if you went and interviewed 10 you know, law firms deeply, you're probably not going to come away thinking, oh, I need to build a marketing content tool for legal teams. It's going to be something around some process that they all think is super inefficient and terrible. And you think, oh, 
I'm pretty sure AI could do that thing here. Let me go build a tool for you and do that. But I think there's a lot of arbitrage to be had in taking this technology to these older industries or different industries that, you know, haven't heard about it or use it or would be a long way off from using it. And if you know the customer really deeply and you just commit to going deep there, you're going to have so many great tools and updates that you can give them that solve a deep pain that nobody else is going to see. And I think I think too many people are just hanging out in like the AI world and not thinking about how to take this to like end users. I, I think there's just a tremendous amount of money there. And, and it, it, there's not probably a lot of money in copying Jasper and building one more marketing tool. There's not a lot of money in probably, for most people, competing against OpenAI or Stable Diffusion. For most people, it's, hey, go somewhere where this is not and be the person that brings it there. And like, there's there's a ton of unicorn businesses, you know, by doing that. Yeah. And I love your point about founder market fit, like find something that you care a lot about and want to learn about if you're not already an expert. in. this was amazing, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be kicking off 2023 with this and really look forward to all the feedback and questions and follow-ups we'll get when we release the episode. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sankhya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.